See you, buddy. All right. Do you guys want to just get cracking now that I've got your attention, or do you need one more minute? You good? All right, let's do it. You guys, it's been a while. My name's Tim, and I used to lead a Sunday school class here, but we've taken the last few weeks off, and we're back at it. Does anybody have any memory whatsoever of what we've been doing for months and months? The life of David. The life of David. Very good. And what? Just first Samuel. First, first Samuel. Look, nice job. First Samuel also into the Psalms. However, a few weeks ago, we transitioned from first Samuel to second Samuel. And I think, Bob, you were probably the last time that we were in first Samuel. The end of, we did uh, 31 and then the beginning of chapter yeah, we did chapter 30. He, he started into 2 Samuel, and then I did one week in it, but then we had like, what, what did we do? We did a bunch of weird stuff. We had an ordination. We had a party for Will. I was somewhere. Easter. Easter. I mean, all kinds of things going on. Okay. So, last time I was with you, you guys remember, we were in, last time we were together, it was 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. What happened? Can anybody load into memory the most recent event in the life of David? I, had, I will confess to you, I had to look it up, right? I'm like, I don't, what did we, I have no idea. So what was it? Saul's people and David's people. Saul's people and David's people. That's a great answer, okay? And I gave you this little alliterative game. Do you remember this? How to keep it straight? Remember it was DJ and the vowels? Does this have any memory? What does DJ and the vowels mean when it comes to making sense of this cast of characters? What's DJ. Okay, yes, yeah, so that's why it's memorable. But what is it in, what is it what does it mean? Do you remember what DJ means? David and Joab. Okay, very good. So David, who is king of Judah, and his his military guy is Joab. Okay, so DJs. Okay, David, Joab, and Judah over here. And then the vowels is admittedly more vague. Less helpful. You're limited to A-E-I-O-U. Sometimes why. But Ishbosheth, who is Ishbosheth? The current ruler. After Saul. Yeah, so he's one of Saul's sons and therefore has perhaps a legitimate claim to the throne. And so he's leading over Israel. Remember, the nation has kind of already begun to split. There are fractures here. So David and Judah are the southern guys. We've really got to change this color of this thing because when my glasses, like, kind of like trifocal on me, like, I'm going to fall off this thing and you can't see the difference. When I go, that's what happened, okay? Um, uh, so Ishbosheth is on Israel's side, and then he also has a military guy whose name starts with a vowel. Abner. You guys are brilliant, okay? So we got David with Judah and Joab, and Ishbosheth over Israel with Abner, and something gross happened. What was it? There was a, there was a yucky death. Do you remember this? <laughs> That's right. Abner who's the Ishbosheth guy, the Israel guy, and essentially the bad guy, kills the brother of Joab with what? <laughs> the butt of a spear. He goes right through him because the dude was just running so fast. Okay, So that whole thing goes down, and you're like, man, there is going to be just war between the house of Judah and Israel. But somehow Abner is able to calm Joab down in a, in a scene that's very reminiscent of Abigail. Do you remember this? That Abigail, you guys are here. Welcome. Glad you're here. Hey, Blendy. Um, and they, they uh, you just distracted me. Stop it. Uh, they had this, they're going to be in a big fight. And Joab kind of calms it down like Abigail, who had also once come to David and say, hey, listen, this, you know, the blood doesn't need to be shed. And then things get better, right? And there's now kind of less tension there. But everything is leaning 
uh, in chapter 2 to the ascension of David and the descension of Ishbosheth, right? But we kind of got the cast of characters. And that's where we left off. Groovy? You ready for the next phase? This is also going to be weird. I think there's no way to make it less weird, so we're just going to make it more weird. We're in chapter 3, okay? One of the things that's complicated about narrative is it just doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you what's right and wrong. Sometimes it'll say, and the Lord was displeased. But usually it's like, this stuff just happens. And so we're going to watch some stuff that as we watch these things happen, it leaves us with a sense of like, well, was this okay? Because this seems, was this okay? I don't know what happened here. And we're just going to kind of get into all the strange stuff. And I will tell you on the front end, I, we, we, we may disagree about this because the narrative does not make explicit what was right, what was wrong, how does this all work. And I'm, I'm, I like disagreement. That's fine. Let's just have an honest conversation about it. But let's just be charitable as we do and acknowledge the text isn't that tidy. And whether or not David is in the right or in the wrong, we could debate. I'm going to come down on the side that I think he's in the wrong and that what we're beginning to see here and what the author wants to do is show us the underlying things that are going to shipwreck his life, right? David's our guy. David is the template of the Messiah. He's going to do so many things well. He's a man after God's own heart. But we know, if you know the end of the story, the wheels are coming off this thing. And David, can, David is not the Messiah. He's the template for the Messiah. He's the forerunner for the Messiah. But he can't keep his own promise. And one of the things that's going to just consume David's life is his relationships with women. He's just bad at the whole woman thing. Lust and anger are the things going to wreck him. And I think the author is planting seeds in here. However, there is another view that says, no, 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 you don't understand. He, he was functioning properly in these circumstances. And there's more going on than your 2021, or what years now, 2022, you know, sense of jurisprudence. Your 2022's America sense of, you know, what, what ought to be. And so there's a debate. Well, we can have the debate. That's fine. But it's just kind of weird, icky stuff. Ready? Let's go. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. <laughs> David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, I'm going to fake the names because you don't know either. Kiliab, son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Whatever else you want to say about having six wives, they didn't have pretty names, okay? Um, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of... We're going to keep going, not the whole chapter, but a little bit more. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Remember the vowels. Abner's on the, on the uh, Ishbosheth side. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why do you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not, if I do, not do for David 
what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. And then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. And so Ishbosheth gave orders. And had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. And then Abner said, go back home. So he went back. This is yucky, right? Can we agree that everything that's happening here is just crummy? How many wives in verses 2 to 5? All right, so what's up with that? And he wants a seventh. We'll get to her in a minute. Four zero. Yeah. Is this okay? Is he allowed to have six wives? You're allowed to come down either side. There, there's there's genuine ambiguity on this. So what what do you think, John? Two things. King forbidden. Okay, be a little bit louder. He's not supposed to. Multiply horses. Yep. There's actually a third as well. We'll take a look at this. So this is one of our data points. Go to Deuteronomy 17. These are the rules given about uh, kings. And David is at least busting. Well, we'll see. We'll see what you think. Because, again, there's ambiguity to this. Solomon is going to just royally break all of these uh, in a way that the the narrator of his life is going to make really clear. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settle in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the, people of, make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord your God has told you you're not to go back that way again. And he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So not too many horses, not too many wives, not too much gold. What's the definition of- That's the problem. It's six. It's not 50. <laughs> But it's six, it's not one. So what does many, I mean, are you allowed three? A few. A few? Six, six is within many. Six is within many? Okay. Now, okay, so now here's the thing. Andy is going to hear it later, but he might be right, actually. Many is, it's not, it's not clear. Do you know how many, do you know how many uh, Solomon gets up to? Well, if you include the concubines, it's around 1,000, okay? That might be many. That, that might be many. It's like, good night, yeah. How does that impact how much money you should accumulate? 
right? Okay, and so, well, it's gonna, you think, you think that the, the offense of the one is going like to help you, help you with the other because she's going to spend all your money? Is that what you're saying? They are going to spend? Yeah, and he doesn't have the horses, so he's killing it on the horse thing, so that's good. Six, right? It's, it's not honestly all that clear. Well, okay, let's, let's keep going with this really miserable topic. What, are you, what is your data? What would make you think, no, he's okay, or absolutely not, and Kelly? Yes. Okay. This is this is a really important point. And so the way that narr- narrators rarely tell you this was right, this was wrong, they simply say this is what they did, and this is how it played out. And over and over, we there's a lot. Who, who are the polygamists that you can just rattle off in your in the Bible that you can think of? Who have multiple wives? Egg everybody basically. Okay. So, I mean, in the old, it's massively common. Who's the first? Jacob. Uh, earlier than that, the very first, I mean, polygamy starts early, early, early. It's, it's Lamech. It's Lamech, right? And Lamech is the one that says, look at, look at the way Lamech, okay, the very, it begins, and I don't think we're supposed to be sympathetic towards Lamech. Look at Genesis, if you want to follow, you can't, go ahead. Genesis 4.19, Lamech married two women, which is not many, right? Two women. One named Ada, the other Zillah, and Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who, tent, who ra- live in tents and raise livestock. His brothers, it doesn't matter. And then it says in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Okay? Is this meant to raise us, raise Lamech in our estimation? Right, what is he, he's just coming across, he's just a violent man. And it's curious that he's not only boasting about his violence and his inclination to like murder people that look at him wrong, but he's saying it to his wives, which, does that not seem threatening? If your husband said to you, listen to me, I've killed a man for, like, so I don't, so the very first time we see polygamy show up, it's not in a sense of like, isn't that guy the best, right? We don't get that sense, right? And then it play, as it plays out, Kelly, not only with David, but with like everybody, it's constantly like for Jacob, it's a train wreck for him, right? We just see over and over again, we get this, impl- this implication of, yeah, I mean, you might be allowed to do this, but it's probably going to go badly for you and for those around you. That's one line of evidence here. What else do you guys consider when you look at this? Yes, Tom. The, uh, the next line in Deuteronomy says, or their heart may be led astray. If you go to Solomon, God didn't seem to be upset with the number that he had it was the fact that they led him to alien gods more so than that he had all. That's right. And, it, and you see it, it's at, the, the text is explicit about Solomon, that he has, I think it's a 700 or 300, whatever, it's a million women, and their hearts absolutely lead him astray. He begins to worship their gods. And that is, uh, now frankly, that can happen with one wife or one husband, right? You don't need a thousand people. But that is what, that is what happens with that warning is appended there for sure. Very much so. What else? What other evidence would you... This, it's a complicated thing because the text... Here's what's troubling. The text goes on, and in some places it tells you that you may not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk in case you were planning on doing that. Okay? <laughs> but it never gets around to saying you can't have two wives. Isn't that odd? That it never explicitly says that you may not... 
with something that is incredible, seems to be very, very common. It's, does this trouble, am I the only person that's bothered by this? This is weird. Zach? How does the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the you shall not commit adultery? Yeah. Okay, so great. So, okay, this is an excellent question. So is, the, in fact, the taking of a second wife itself fundamentally an act of adultery? Right? Is that kind of the implication? Okay, so it could be. But the problem is, it's literally never clarified. It never says that that's the case. So, maybe. I mean, we have to live in this wretched maybe-ness about all of this. Okay? But the adultery text could. What else? Other data that you would go to on either side of this, as we're just trying to make sense of it all. Yeah. Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father okay, great. and join to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So if he takes another wife, mm. flesh with her as well, and then are the two wives also one flesh with each other? Okay, great. Yes, and so there's some, there's some, some, some logistical difficulties, right? <laughs> right, if nothing else. Um, and you could absolutely make the case that the pattern, like the normative pattern, here's what you ought to go do, is one man, one wife, right? So that seems to be the norm. And then when, as things begin to deviate from that, if it doesn't get pulled back in, well, was God obligated to, to clarify that or not? I, it's just weird. But you, could, you definitely, you don't see a norm, that's not the normative pattern that's laid out. And the meaning of marriage, what it's meant to portray, seems to be very complicated by that. So good. All right. Anything else? Make it worse? Fetz? Just the cultural stuff. It's, it's, a, it's thousands of years ago. It's kingdom building. It's, I mean, just if you look at it from a secular standpoint, in the very beginning, probably it made sense to have more than one wife just, just to populate the world. Just to make a lot of babies. Most of the, most of the uh, early deaths were going to be from guys in the war. Uh, if, if, there, if, in fact, um, polygamy was permitted, I'll come to you in one second, Jennifer. I think, I think that's probably the reason, because there's no, there's no question, in a warring society, you're going to be killing a lot more men than women. For whatever reason, men and women are born at, a, at very nearly identical rates, and then the men are dying. And so it makes sense. Many men, many men were dying. Many men, right? A lot. Many men, right? And so, and so that is one thing that... that there could have been polygamy could be permissible because absent that, there's going to be women that are just unprovided for. This could be true. Jennifer? I just throw out the concept that in the garden, God didn't make Adam too much. That's right. And that's very, that's very much what Gary was saying. It's like the, the normative pattern, the original thing is that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And a couple more. Yeah, Judy? I was just thinking that in terms of um, commandment not to marry outside of For sure. Breaking that anyway, and that leads to the other gods, and that leads to all the other problems. So whether you're talking about polygamy or not, again, I think it's cultural. A lot of a lot of what happened for Israel, even the temple and the sacrifices, were very cultural. Yes. Alien or strange. So I think some of it is in the time and place, but also the thing that leads to um, sin and disaster is the fact that there were people who are not married outside of their faith either at the same time. Yes, okay. So, so many things that are wise in there that Judy just said. So, 
and we're going to see the political dim dimension of this really with wife number seven, right? She's coming in a minute. We'll see the, I'll come to you in a second, John. We'll see the political stuff come up there. That's a big deal. And you're right, the, he, the foreign entanglements was a bad thing. So there could both be a political alliance. And this has been going on like, you know, the, I don't know, the king of France would marry off his kid to the daughter of, you know, the king of England or something, right? I don't know how those works. But that was all, the there's all the time that these alliances get formed. So that's, that's part of a thing. But it comes with it some, some really negative consequences, for sure. Okay, John. Uh, to back up the idea of uh, polygamy being brought in by such a large amount of warfare. Now, this is not biblical, but uh, among the American Indians, the Cherokees were normally monogamous. However, if, a, uh, if warfare had decimated male population of a particular village, the remaining uh, men would take on one or two extra wives. And that, that's very much what Professor was saying, right? And it makes total sense that why you, you got to come up with some kind of a solution one way or another. So, for sure. Dan? If, if we take marriage, human marriage, to be a, an image of the great marriage. Okay, yeah. You know, the great marriage is one husband, one wife. But the bride consists of, like, mm -hmm. billions of people, and that's many by any standard. Right, okay. And so it, it is fuzzy there, too, because Jesus has one bride. Right? We are the collective one bride. And so this is a very strong argument for monogamy. And you're like, and they're like, well, but I mean, there's a lot of them. Right? I mean, and, that, and so you get that exact, you get that weirdness. I, I'm going to come down on that Jesus has one bride. It's never, he, we are never described as brides of Christ. It's, we, he has a bride, the church. But we can be forgiven for being like, but this seems like there's a lot of people, you know? So, yeah. Zach. So you talk about so you've talked about how the multiple wives may have led to the negative consequences as a story. Yeah. What does it say about the ultimate consequence after death? Because we presume David to be, like you said, the template of the Messiah. So we would assume that he's for, not only for sure in heaven, but one of the best of us. So yes. Play into, yeah. Play into adultery being a salvation mm. is. Oh, it's a great question. So let's say if David was wrong in this. Well, whether David, okay, maybe David was right or wrong in having six wives. We'll come back to that. Um, maybe he's right or wrong in stealing um, Michael back from who, Pelletiel or whatever his name is, right? And who knows? But there's going to be some things that David is absolutely going to get wrong, hugely wrong. He's just going to completely blow. There's no question about the Bathsheba thing. There's no question about murdering Uriah, all kinds of stuff. And so is David saved? Is he forgiven? And the answer to that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is yes. Because David like us, is not saved by his own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another. And in fact, we get some of the most beautiful language that the New Testament uses. It's borrowing from David, who was like, surely I was, you know, sinful at birth, you know. Um, Before you and you only have I sinned. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin the Lord does not hold against him. And so David's reflections on his own badness are enshrined into Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to give hope to the rest of us that also are like, well, if we really played the highlight reel, I'd have no position to be here. And we don't, right? And, but what, we never thought that we were saved by our own holiness, but by his holiness credited to us and received by faith. And so that's true. However, so however bad, however wrong David is in these things, 
he still lives in the same sea of grace that, that we do. Okay. I'll give you a couple more data points, and then we'll move on. Um, the, things, the, the, the things that trouble me about this, or the things that make, when I say trouble me, the things that make me think that it might not have been wrong, right? A couple things uh, it, are that, listen to, what Dave, listen to what God says. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll get here in a few weeks, but just listen to this. When I, when I, when I came across this, I'm like, what are you saying? This is when Nathan rebukes David for the whole Bathsheba thing, which was clearly bad, clearly wrong. Nathan says to David, uh, he, he's already done the whole little like man with a ewe lamb and he steals a sheep and that, he tells a story and he busts David. He says, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul and I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives, plural, into your arms. The Lord gave David multiple wives. If you tell me that the Lord gave you multiple wives, I'm not going to believe you, okay? Just save it. Just stop, okay? I'm not going to believe you. But this says that the Lord gave his master's wives into his arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And then check this out. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more, right? Then he says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. And I think with that, he's legitimized. And this comes back to the adultery question, like... Bathsheba legitimately became his wife. God affirms that she was a wife. That's a real thing. She, ha she attained the status of wife. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then it, gets, it goes on. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Be very, very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. So once again, the Lord is giving a plurality of wives and he will lie with your wives, plural, in broad daylight. So the Lord is implicated in that. And that's weird. And I don't like that. But then the other thing, the final thing is, if there's any book in the Old Testament on marriage, what is it? Who wrote it? Okay. So he's got this line in here, which I don't recommend you ever write in a card. He says, 60 queens there may be, and 80 concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. He's saying to his wife, yeah, I mean, there's like 150 more, but you're my favorite. Like, <laughs> holy moly. Like, I don't recommend that. Okay? Now, on the other side, when we finally get to the New Testament, when we finally get there, the elder rules are explicit in their forbidding of polygamy. Right? Four elders. So, 1 Timothy 3 the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Finally, okay? Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Titus 1, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Okay? That's your, there's your quick survey on polygamy in the Bible. It's, it's a, it, it would be very difficult to travel into a culture where polygamy existed and, as your missionary and to show them from the scriptures that they're wrong. It would be hard. There's just not a lot of text to do it. They can't be elders. Is he wrong? Was it wrong to have this? Then, and maybe you work from there, okay? But that's, I think, what we do. So when we look at David, is he right? Is he wrong? Was it wrong to have the six? I don't know, Andy. You don't think that's many? Nope. It's just a few? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, wait, what'd you say? Six is half a dozen. Six is half a dozen. So what, what, what is many? Just 23. 23. <laughs> All right. 
All right, good luck with that. Hope it works out for you. How many husbands is too many? <laughs> One. Okay. All right, that's just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. Oh, boy. Let's keep going. All right, so anyway, things go badly. Ishbosheth loses Abner. Abner's been faithful to him, he's been loyal to him. And then finally, again, over some kind of a sexual impropriety, and we don't know the details, he's going to lose him. Did Abner sleep with this concubine? I don't know. We don't know. He, does, he, he says, how dare you accuse me of that? If somebody is accused of sexual impropriety and they say, how dare you accuse me of that, did they do it? I mean, I don't know. We don't know. The text, I'm not even sure the author knows. He doesn't, he doesn't say. Like, but denial does not mean you didn't, and accusation doesn't mean you did. And this is an old, old, old story that continues to this day. What is it? Um, well, does he explicitly deny it? Or does he just get mad at the accusation? I don't think he ever says, am I wrong? He, he's, uh, hang on, I can't find it. Where is it? Abner was angry. I'm sorry, go ahead, Zach. Definitely circled around. Yeah, Abner was angry. Um, I've been loyal to you. Now you accuse me of this. He never says he didn't. And I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't. I don't have any idea. But whatever it is, it tears the relationship. And then the author doesn't get into the particulars. I don't think he really cares. He's just trying to explain to us why, how does Ishbosheth lose Abner? Because Abner's now going to deliver David over. But it's interesting. Yet the first movement is you got six wives, and that's weird. And then you got somebody maybe sleeping with somebody that they shouldn't be, and that's weird. And then we're going to have this wife thing. And it's just like, man, this is. We live in this, you know, whether it's in the Me Too era, pre-post or mid-Me Too, we are really bad at managing this. Like for centuries and centuries, this is hard stuff for us to manage. And I think that the author wants us just to see it was hard for David too. There's some, and it, we're going to see it. It's going to come later, but he's having, a, he's having a rough go at this. And so he makes this demand. So let's do a little bit of history lesson here, David's history. He says, let's see, find your place. Uh, so here, we're at verse 13. Let's, let's unpack this. David says, I'll make an agreement with you, but one demand. I demand one thing of you. Don't come into my presence unless you bring Michael, the daughter, and maybe it's Michelle, I don't know. Michael, the daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Okay? What do you remember about her? She, had a little, she has showed up several times, and almost never in a good way, right? What's, the, what's, her, what's her story? Do you remember where, she, where we begin to see her? What do you remember? What's the earliest moment? She was a princess, one of the second oldest daughter of Saul. Good. And um, she fell in love with David, and uh, eventually the bride price was uh, a bunch of Philistines, and David covered it and came back to the That's right. That's right. So, so she is the daughter of Saul, and, da- and, and Saul, Saul sees that Michael likes David, and he's like, oh, perfect. Now my daughter will entrap him and be a snare to him. Right, which is, can you imagine as a father, like, oh yeah, now my daughter's going to wreck that guy's life. Let's go, but that's what happens, right? And so David doesn't want to marry her. Then he does. You can see it. It's in. Go, in fact, we'll survey through it. Go to First Samuel 18, verse 20. Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David when they when they told Saul about it. He was pleased. I'll give her to him. She'll be a snare to him. The hand of the Philistines will be against him, and. Uh, David doesn't want to do it. And then he says, you know, who am I to marry the king's daughter? And he says, go kill a bunch of Philistines and bring me their foreskins. And so he does, and that's weird. 
And then the attendants told David these things. Um, he was pleased to become the king's son of law. So David and his men, verse 22, went out and they killed 200 Philistines. And he brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son of law. Then Saul gave his daughter to Michael in marriage. Weird. Okay. Then, when things go on, uh, in chapter 19, where Saul is trying to kill David. Remember, he's chucking spears. This is back in the spear era. In verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So she lets David down through a window. She, he, flee, he flees and escapes. And Michael makes an idol, lays it in the bed. P.S., why do you have an idol, Michael? I mean, yeah, what is that about? And it's basically like a mannequin under the bed so that they don't know that it's David, that David's gone. And then she lies to her father. And in verse 17 of chapter 19, Saul says to his daughter, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away? And Michael says, he said, let me get away. Why should I kill you? So she lies again. She's just lying all over the place. So she's a liar. She's an idolater, but she is helping David. And so that's a little complicated. And then uh, finally here, David's like, I want her back. So as near as we can tell, Oh, one more thing I skipped. When David, when David flees and he's gone, he abandons her. He's gone. This whole time that he's running around in the woods and hiding with Jonathan and doing all this kind of stuff, his, he, his wife's not there. He seems to have abandoned her. And so her father marries her off again. Um, what is it, Kelly? Because then he was dancing like a madman too. Didn't mention that. She that's exactly right. Now that's going to come later. That's in chapter, that's Second Samuel chapter 6. So that's going to come and you're going to, oh, we'll, we'll look at that because you kind of get the sense of there's always, there's just always acrimony in this relationship, right? So go ahead, we'll, we'll flip up to it. Second Samuel 6, chapter 6, that's when they're bringing the ark back. Um, start on verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf and David wearing the linen ephod danced before the Lord with all his might, basically in his underwear is what that means. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of Saul, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And when she saw the king leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And when David returned home to bless his household, Michael came out. How the king has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Right? So there's just, there's just a lot of yuck, a lot of acrimony. And then David's like, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father's house. Uh, when he appointed me ruler over the, over the Lord's people, and I will celebrate before the Lord, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And the conclusion of that is verse 23, and she had no children to the day of her death. It's meant to be an indictment against her. So, yeah, Marty? Michael's her father's daughter. I mean, not very... Her father is what? Michael is Saul's daughter, just like Saul. That's right. He has kind of a quasi-relationship with the Lord, but it's really not very about that. I think that's exactly what we're supposed to see. That's right. Is that, so she, we're, I don't think we're supposed to be particularly sympathetic to Micah. I mean, to Michael, right? She is more in the spirit of her father. She, she was in love with David once upon a time, which probably means she thought he was cute. Probably, right? It's early, kind of, a, it's like a crush thing. But as things go on, she seems to come to despise him. She's lying. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. And in this final scene of, the, of, them, of him dancing, I think David is supposed to look, David does look good here. He is honoring the Lord and he doesn't care who, he doesn't care about being ashamed before the public. 
but I think she has influenced him, right? And it's just part of the it's just part of the breakdown of David in these relationships. Fetz? Yeah, just to confirm that, when it says Michael, it, it often says daughter of Saul, as if you need to be reminded that this is Saul's uh, blood. That's right. And I think, that, so those tags are not just data. This is how narrative works. They'll just give you data, but it's like, hint, hint. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you remember who she is? It's, it's that kind of data. Okay. So we, we get, okay, so this is the history. But now, what do you do? Why does, he, why does David want his wife back? First of all, what's his motive there? Not that he's lonely. Maybe he wants one a day. I don't know. But, but he's got six wives. What is going on? It's, wait, wait. I'm sorry, too many voices. Jennifer? Okay. Well, yeah, I did pay 100 Philistine foreskins for that. And when I pay 100 Philistine foreskins, I like to want cough it up, right? So he did buy her. But I think there's something specific that he's trying to accomplish here. And it goes back to what Judy said. She is the daughter of Saul. And by reclaiming her as his wife, it's re-legitimizing his claim over Israel. Right? It's a way to become an heir. The whole thing was he, didn't, he was afraid to become an heir of the king because of the implications of that. So it is his ticket to being the son-in-law, to having agency over to his claim to Israel. So Michael is a political pawn in this game. And he's not, it's not that he loves her and misses her and wants his wife back. It doesn't seem like he was ever terribly fond of her in the first place. Simply that he's consolidating power, right? Now, whether you see that as God's manner of accomplishing his purposes, because he promised him all of the kingship, or David using a sketchy method, kind of like Abraham sleeping with Hagar, I'll leave that to you to chew up. But this is what the narrator, I think, wants us to wrestle with. Andy? I don't know. Uh, certainly, it is true that seven is a number of completion, seven days in a week. Things happen in sets of seven. And so, if, if so, then that would, that would mean the author is suggesting that this was a good thing. And let's get seven, maybe. I'm not sure. But this, uh, sometimes it's just, sometimes numbers are just happenstance. I don't, I don't really know. I don't know. Um, what about Michael's husband? What do you think we're supposed to think of him, her other husband? Do you think that the, the narrator wants you to read this? Her husband, verse 16, her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. And then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. What do you think? Judy, do you think? I, I, anybody disagree? I think it's a crummy thing. I think David, I think, I think it's very much like David wants another ewe lamb, and so he takes somebody else's. You can read commentaries that'll come down against me on this and say, no, David's consolidating the kingship, and God gave him the kingdom. I think God can give him the kingdom without breaking this guy's heart. It's his wife. And the king, I think it's abuse of power. I think it's, a, I think it's abuse of authority. And I think it's, again, the beginning of the cracks in the kingdom of David that are going to widen and widen and widen. So as we honor him, as we read his psalms, as we recognize that he is the template, we also recognize, man, we need somebody better than this to lead the world and be our king. That's not going to be abusive in the way that he treats people. That is not going to be, not going to disadvantage others for the good of himself. So I find this highly unadmirable as we go, as we go through it. Anybody disagree? Yeah. Ellen? But I think it's the fallout of the 
trouble between David and Saul. So Michael is David's wife. She wasn't, couldn't really legally marry this other man because she's already married to somebody. I don't, I've never seen the, in the Bible where a wife can have multiple husbands. Yeah. But Fetch, you agree with that? Wives can't have multiple husbands? Okay, all right, so make sure. Okay. And so, um, Saul then gives her to somebody else. He hasn't got the right to give her to somebody else. She is David. Yeah. And so David is exercising that right to take his wife back. But the fallout is that her husband, her second husband, is deeply hurt because to me it reads that he's in love with her. And he is deeply hurt, but there's nothing he can do. And so that's the fallout. This is what between them. I don't know if Michael loved him or not, but he loved her. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And even as the you're 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 kind of crystallizing it a little bit in a way that reminds me, you know, every couple of years there'll be a story of an adoption. You, you, you see this not so much with husbands and wives, but with parents and children. Where there's a baby, and the adoption goes here, and then the adoption breaks, and then you've got to take this two-year-old and rip her out of her family, and then give her back to her lawful parents. But now it's like everywhere you, everybody's broken heart. You know these stories? These things will happen, and you're like, holy moly, what are we to do? Like, how, the, Two wrongs don't make a right, but if she was really their, their kid, but now she thinks she's theirs. And this is that similar emotional vibe where just like, at the end of the day, you're like, everything's horrible. Everything's just really yucky. And there's a lot of times in the scriptures where you'll see things and you're like, I don't know what the right answer is. But what I do know is that everything's a mess. And it's just horrible and broken and terrible. And there's just a, and that's true to life. Sometimes there are no clean, tidy solutions. And the world is just painful and broken. You know, Gary? There's a second reason why we ought to give David a break here. He, when he gives an order to Abner and Ishbosheth, a precedent that you know I give the orders and you do what I say so he's so it's a power play he's establishing the pecking order yes there's no question and David is coming he's been waiting a long time to be king right he's like the little the Lion King kid who's singing his song he just can't wait to be king right and he and it's true and now he is making he's going to be very politically shrewd he's going to get a lot of things right I'm not anti-David we I mean we've been extolling him for months He's going to get a lot of things right. And it might be even the consolidation of power is the right thing to do. But it strikes me is there's some, a loss of humanity in some of the decisions that he makes. Okay? Groovy? All right. So now, we always play this game. I've only got a few minutes because Quig and Barb are both gone. So I've got like a lot of jobs this morning. So we're going to end just a, a little bit early because I've got to go suit up and do priesty things. But um, uh, how does this text, okay, how does this text point us to Christ? We always want to like, we're trying to develop that habit like, how does this thing really, it's meant to reveal Jesus. What does this, good or bad, and we can go on both sides, what should this, how should this be framing the way that we're thinking about Messiah when he comes? In fact, let me do this. Uh, this is such an important question. I'm going to like, we're going to pause for one minute at your tables because it's hard to answer in front of 200 people. So quick, circle up and I don't know, and do you got anything? How does this thing point us to Christ? Give yourself 60 seconds and then we'll, I'll hear what you, you can report back. Maybe. Uh, 
Brilliant ideas. Come on back in. What do you think? And as always, 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 this is a skill we're just trying to develop, and you're allowed to get things wrong on the way to getting it right. Okay, so let, what, do you, what do you think? How, how, as we peer into this text, if we accept the premise that all of Scripture is pointing us to Christ, what do we take from this? Just distill it down. Anybody, anybody at your table say something you thought was interesting, insightful? They're all offended if you don't speak because they thought it was interesting and insightful. Yeah, jump in. Hi. Oh, I didn't say it. Don, what do you got? I thought it was interesting that David pursued somebody who didn't really love him. Okay. Interesting. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. We, there's, a, there's a pattern of pursuing the, unlove, the one that does not love you that he pursues. That's a really good insight, Don. Yeah. That happens here, and, and Jesus, that is indicative of Jesus' life. It's beautiful. But he pursued it for something, right? So we take what we get, right? It's a, he never, Jesus always not only fulfills, but overfills the pictures. Yeah, Josh? Yeah, so I'll extend off of that and flip it to say, like, David seeks after a wife who he does not love to gain political power. Jesus gives up his power to seek out his bride who he does love. Ooh, we like that, right? Yeah, that was good. That was good. Anybody want to top that? That's good. That's real good. Yeah. Well, you know, the Hebrews are always messing up. They just couldn't get it right. So it's, it's part of that. But also it's a great need for Christ. Wow. It points to our faith. Yeah. So Dan's saying that, that, that well, everybody's screwing up, but that, that's always happening. And so all of the badness, whenever you get to what we call the fallen condition focus, the badness and the brokenness in the text, all of that is like, well, that's why we need a Savior. Because we see reflected in David's stuff and Ishbosheth and Abner, all the mess. We're like, this is why the world needs an incredibly costly solution. Because everything's just a train wreck, for sure. Shima? Kind of going off that, when, you know, in this scenario, there's a lot of division and debates and uncertainty about who's the king and who's the right king. Mm. When Christ comes, there is no debate. There's no discussion. He is he's matchless. He's the king no matter what. Yeah, he overfills the whole thing. However, and, and it's true that he is, uh, he's the matchless king. But I would observe that uh, he is not the... There are many who dispute his kingship, right? So we see that, that, that the, an ascension to a throne is generally a messy affair. What's, un, what's uncommon in Jesus' ascension is how much of the mess falls upon himself, right? But it's generally, a, a, there's, a, there's, there's contention. John says that the kingdom of God advances forcefully and forceful men lay hold of it. There's just a sense of like, man, there's just going to be, there's going to be travails and struggle and trial. And indeed there is. When the king comes... He, he, he is already enthroned as king, but not everyone has yet bent the knee. The day will come that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But right now, there is a battle being waged about who he is, and we shouldn't be shocked if the, if the templates are also a sloppy mess. Okay, Don, i got to stop. i got to roll. So uh, next week we'll finish up chapter, I think chapter 3. We haven't finished chapter 3 yet, so we're going to see more of David kind of consolidating power, and we'll take it from there.
Thank you, thank you, thank you.